Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 76 of Caro Pop. This is part two of our conversation with the great British musician, Graham Parker. Here he discusses how he has worked to maximize his growth as a singer-songwriter, even if that meant leaving behind the crack band that backed him for his first five albums. Nick Lowe produced the debut, 1976's Howlin' Wind, one of the earliest and greatest so-called new wave albums. Mutt Lang, who would later become famous for working with ACDC and Def Leppard, turned the dials on Heat Treatment, a worthy follow-up. Nick Lowe was back for a hastily recorded version of the third album, Stick to Me, after bad things happened to the tape on the first attempt. Then, in 1979, came Squeeze It Out Sparks, produced by Jack Nietzsche. On that album, Parker and the Rumor left behind the horn section and toughened up their sound. The songs were pretty damn good, too, including Local Girls, Discovering Japan, Passion Is No Ordinary Word, protection. Did Parker have any idea that squeezing out Sparks would be so revered that he toured behind its 40-year anniversary? Is that the album of his that he considers a stone-cold classic, or does he choose another one? In 1980 came The Up Escalator with more commercially-minded producer Jimmy Iovine. Not only had Iovine worked with Bruce Springsteen, but Springsteen and E Street Band organist Danny Federici appear on the album. So does great session keyboardist Nicky Hopkins. Parker takes issue with that album's sound, less so its songs. Members of The Rumor were not happy with the Up Escalator experience, and Parker was ready to move on as well. That would be the last Parker album with The Rumor for more than 30 years. For another gray area, Parker worked with John Lennon Cheap Trick producer Jack Douglas and a studio band that represented a sharp turn from the rumor. You could hear the new soft touch in the lead track, Temporary Beauty, though Parker thought You Hit the Spot should have had a chance on the dance floor. Throughout the 1980s, Parker received more airplay on songs such as You Can't Take Love For Granted, Life Gets Better, and Wake Up Next To You, his one top 40 hit in the U.S. For the 1988 album, The Mona Lisa Sister, which included the single Get Started, Start a Fire, Parker took over the producer's role alongside his rumor bandmate and former Carol Pop guest, Brinsley Schwartz. He was much happier with the sound from that point forward. On the song Girl in Need, from his 2018 album Cloud Symbols, Parker sings to a character Aside from the past your prime part, would he apply that advice to himself? Does he get the same charge out of writing and performing as he did when he started? Graham Parker has never been one to mince words and he has a lot to say here. Please enjoy part two of this Carol Pop conversation with Graham Parker. So Nick Lowe, who was in Brinsley Schwartz, uh, and then obviously you have two members of Brinsley Schwartz in the rumor, produced uh, Howlin' Wind. Then you had Mutt Lang on um, Heat Treatment, and then yeah. 
stick to me was Nick Lowe again, although my understanding is there was a whole other version of it that got recorded first. And then you have Jack Nietzsche. He did Squeezing Out Sparks. Then you had G- Jimmy Iovine on uh, The Up Escalator. How much did the producers kind of affect what you were doing on each of those records? Uh, well, in those days, yeah, it was, it was uh, producing a record was a mystery to me, really. And so it was it was just something that you were supposed to do. You had to get a producer, and as you got more and more and more money, and the record deals kept getting bigger and bigger, and, uh, you know, we were successful in our own way, and so you get more expensive producers. Uh, you know, Jimmy Iovine and even following through after that, um, some very successful producer, Jack Douglas, right. David Kirschenbaum, you know, these are successful guys with other artists. And so that's that's what you do. It, it didn't really occur to me much that I could basically get do what they did. They would get an engineer who would do the meat and potatoes. You know, that's what they were doing. And so I thought that's when I eventually realized, well, I should I should try that. I'd call an engineer who knows what they're doing, you know, give give them the job of co-producer. They can steer the ship as I look forward with the telescope and say that's where we're going. You know, the visionary aspect of it which isn't rocket science, it's pop music after all, three and a half chords, you know. Yeah, I just went along with the flow. I mean, I, I didn't really think too much about it until Jack Nietzsche. Then I kind of gave it some real thought because he had just recorded this band, Willie, the Mink Deville. And there was this song out called, uh, it was out at Mr. Jim, Spanish Stroll it was called. And it was called in some some of the press over here, the first new wave, one of the first new wave records, along with Jonathan Richmond. There was this new wave thing, of course, broke into the, with punk in the middle of 77, kind of, a, that exploded on the high street. And um, so Mick DeVille had that one song. I've never, I didn't like anything else they ever did, what I heard, didn't like it at all. But that one song was a very cool single. It had that kind of irreverent kind of pop, reconstructed pop music attitude. And I had some vague idea that, you know, I knew that Jack Nietzsche was around when the Stones were doing those EPs they had. They actually mentioned his name or something at some point. And um, and, and uh, then it was only after I hired him that I learned more about him. That Oh, he, he actually helped arrange some of the Phil Spector music. You know, he was a he could conduct, he could write music and arrange. So he had that experience. And... Um, it was more that, more film film stuff than anything else. You know, I think he was very into that. But, yeah, so he, he just sort of popped up as somebody I thought was could be really interesting for this record. To get it less, um, you know, take the, the songs didn't sound like they sounded like a horn section songs. It didn't sound like that. And so that, that single, that Spanish stroll single, was kind of like, that's, that's pretty good. I wonder if this guy would be interested, just out of the blue. And, and Dave Robinson, you know, he's a, somebody who's really been around, you know, uh, a huge experience with all kinds of different stuff. Um, so it seemed, I don't know, give it a shot. And he, he just turned up and, and said, yes, let's do this. When you wrote the songs for that album, did you envision it as another album with your, you know, horn section and and all of that? Or, or were no, you no, no, no. No, the, the songs were not, the, the songs were not saying horn section to me at all. Only one, Mercury Poisoning, which didn't even end up on the album because right. it didn't it didn't suit the album at all to me. He, that was the only one. No, the other ones were like, this isn't a horn section record. This is something else. 
We need this to be less cluttered. We need this to be much more streamlined. And that's where Jack Nietzsche came in. So did he change your approach? Like, were you sort of doing it one way? And he said, no, this, you got to strip this out. You got to come back, tear it up and, you know, just come come at it from a different direction. Well, he wasn't changing my approach because I was a singer songwriter then and still am now and was in the beginning. So sure. it was me on a, on a guitar. And of course, th those songs, as, as we went along, it was like, I'll put my guitar down. I don't need to play on Discovering Japan, for instance, or Don't Get Excited. So, but they were written on acoustic guitar and I could sing them, but it, he changed the band, not me, not me. He said to the band, you should be playing what Graham is playing. Why are you making all this stuff up, basically? Mm. All this stuff is about you. It's not about the song. It's not about Graham. And that's been my template ever since, really. Once I stopped using producers, that was, that's been my template. Why are you playing that? You know, listen to what I'm doing here. He got them to listen. And um, different things happened that were that made the songs work entirely. When you went into that, did you think, oh, this is my best group of songs ever? Well, I always think that. <laughs> then, I, then I have the nasty shock later on, thinking, yeah, maybe not. But there, are, you know, I'm proud of every record I've made, and I, I, I you know, there's a few songs that I think, well, uh, you know, a few, not many, not many. I, you know, regrets. I've had a few, but not, not a great deal in the songwriting respect. No, not at all. So, um, but they they turned out even better because the rumor was playing them and playing them differently to how they played before right so that they you know that's a, that's a double bonus right there i mean at the time did you think oh you know 40 years from now i'm just going to be doing a tour of just this album because it's going to be so revered no not in the slightest no no if i said there was a real stone cold classic i'd say howling wind every time yeah and when it came out you know i'm sorry Punk didn't really quite exist. New Wave didn't. It was a word in the back of the music press. Right. It was creeping out. The Ramones had come along, who were more like a cartoon pop band to me. You know, but at the same time, aggressive, which is good. It's like, you know, definitely in the same bag in that respect. I, I thought it was really a hot, really good album. But I thought the same about all of them. You know, I like to, after the producer had gone home, I'd sit there with Andrew or... Martin or someone and, and tell the assistant engineer, the tape operator, put it up. Let's listen to it again. We get blasted and listen to, you know, a basic track and think, how great is this? You know, so it's it. I wouldn't like to come out of an album thinking oh, it's nowhere near as good as the last one. I, I, I wouldn't want to feel like that. And I, and I really haven't, you know. What was Nick Lowe's role on Howlin' Wind? Nick was, uh, you know, uh, very uh, perfect for it, really. I think he created a lovely, spacious sound for us. Um, basically, you know, the engineer was good. It was a, a good studio, really good. You know, obviously much more advanced than the one I'd worked at before in the back, back garden of a guy, which was not bad at all for what it was. And... Uh, he knew the music. He knew that, you know, I was a singer-songwriter. He knew that much, and he knew the band, obviously. You know, the guys in the band, even Steve and Andrew, who weren't in the Brinsley Schwartz group, and Martin, he knew them. He was They, they were part of that. Um, a bunch of musicians who knew each other and knew each other's work and interacted. 
Um, in fact, they played. They were soon to get get around of jamming with each other before I came along and was basically planted into them by Dave Robinson, the manager. And Nick's idea was to get everyone extremely excited about what we were doing, which meant a lot of alcohol and other things. It was a party, you know, you didn't think anything else. You were young, you did, you could do this stuff. And it was all, it was, it was fun, but it was serious work. You work seriously. Doesn't matter what condition you're in, how much fun you're having, the work is serious. And that's how it was for us then. And I think he, he was insti instinctively the best, a very good producer for that record. Dave Robinson just thought of it. And I didn't know the guy. I didn't know I didn't know he was in this Brinsley Schwartz band until Dave said, yeah, he was, he was a bass player. He was a sort of singer, the Russia. Some of the, he wrote some of the songs. You know. What did I know? I didn't know it. I just went along with what the manager said. It was a great choice, no question. How did you end up with Mutt Lang, who would go on later to become known for, you know, like bands like Def Leppard, but back in 76 again, I mean, it's the same year, like you're, you're cranking these albums out. How did you end up with him for Heat Treatment? Again, it was a Dave Robinson idea, and I, he just said, there's this guy, I know this guy, I know his manager, Mutt Langer. He's very talented, really, and uh, he wants to do your, your album. He loves you, he loves the playing, he loves the musicianship, he loves the songs, he wants to do it. So I said, okay. And uh, it's, it's completely different from a Howling Wind approach. His approach wasn't to have us rocking and having fun in the studio. His approach was to separate us all by miles so that there was no spillage going on and then join us all together as if we'd been playing in a room, which to me doesn't quite work. But nevertheless, heat treatment isn't a bad follow-up. And then what happened with Stick to Me? I'd seen something there where you had like this sort of lush production and wound up redoing it very quickly with Nick Lowe. Yeah, no, it, was, it wasn't a rush production. We took weeks and weeks with it. it was, what it was was the, the punk had hit. Okay, it was just around that time. The Sex Pistols album had finally come out and it went to number one. And from then on, people I knew in the suburbs who had long hair are talking about punk. You know, before that, it was like they, were, they just discovered Genesis. You know, and now suddenly they're, they're like, oh, it was a musical event of the year. It's like, oh, you don't know what you, you, don't, you, don't, you don't understand this at all. Anyway, they'd come along then and uh, I'd written these songs like Watch the Moon Come Down. And that, that was a, Big, big song for me. It's like it was elegant. It was singer-songwriting music. It wasn't punk, right? And there's this punk thing happening. At the same time, I've got the aggression of punk before punk really got existed or really became a a cultural phenomenon. You know, before it became everyday normal that there would be bands, young bands, you you trauma punk bands. You know, so I had the aggressive aggression in my voice anyway. But the the stick to me was meant to be a big, expansive record that did not sound like that gnarly, grungy, yeah, punk sound. Uh, but there was just something wrong with the tapes, man. There was this oxide coming off of them. It's just, uh, there it was. It couldn't be mixed. And I wish those tapes had been saved because you could probably take it now, dump it on digital. You could probably take individual singles, but, you know, you could take these... These sounds, one one thing after another, maybe bounce them on a digital and make and mix the record. I don't know, but it's it's spilled milk, you know, it's gone. And so we we did it in a week with Nick Lowe because he's the guy who can bash him down and tart him up later. Bash it low, bash it down, get it done, you know. So we played the songs before 
unfortunately, we had to throw them. That was, that was gone. And I, I'm kind of pragmatic. I'm a pragmatist. It's like, okay, we do it again. Unfortunately, it got sandwiched between record with tours. So we, we weren't, we couldn't recreate what we'd done. Nick wasn't going to try and recreate that because he didn't know what we'd done. He was going to record it and get it done in a week instead of, you know, a month that we'd been taking to make this eloquent-sounding record. Um, so it was disappointing. But what I think now about the stick to me is that any when when grunge came along, I thought any any self-respecting grunge band would love to sound like stick to me. It's 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 kind of gnarly, you know. Yeah, and I kind of like it for that now. I wish I wish though that that those tapes existed, and I could get them to some expert that might be able to lift. Lift everything yeah. up. I was going to ask you whether they existed, so I'm disappointed that they don't. I was hoping somewhere there were these oxidized tapes that uh, you know <sighs> box somewhere. But yeah, man, no. I, well, Dave Robinson, I said, Dave, do those tapes exist? He said, No, they were destroyed. Okay, well, I'll take it from the manager. I guess they were destroyed. And mm. in those days, of course, everything was destroyed. Everything was destroyed. You know, even classic television shows like on the BBC like Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. They just took, the engineer would take them and say, well, that's done, it's finished, it's old, it's gone. That's no, you know. So you taped over them, they taped over the tapes. So to me, even in, in 77, it seems likely to me that they were just dumps, that's it. You switched labels, so you bought from Mercury, where clearly you were not that pleased with your um, experience there, and you're on Arista for um, squeezing out Sparks, and now you've got Up Escalator, and you have a bigger budget and a bigger name producer in Jimmy Iovine. How did that experience work for you for that record? And, and it's also the last one you did with A Rumor, and it sounds like it's sort of coinciding with you thinking, I need to do more than just The Rumor. Uh, yeah, well, the up escalator, you know, Jimmy, the very talented guy, and um, and his engineer, very talented. Um, so yeah, it was. I didn't think the rumor guys were too happy with it at all. Really, they weren't happy with it, even when it was when it was finished and done. They didn't like it at all. I, I thought it was good, uh, not not as good as squeezing out sparks by a long shot. But I mean, songs like Empty Lives, I and mean, come on, that's a monster <laughs> of a song. That's a, that's an absolute giant of the two. There's good stuff on there, but I don't. The sound of it, I've always, I've long, I've long said this. To me, that the album sound has no sonic identity. That's what I get from it. No sonic identity. All the others have an identity. They've had one since. I don't know how to describe that other than it just sounds plain to me. The the attack of the rumor is still there. That's all good, you know. But the sound is. And that was, you know, the 80s had just begun and it was the, the age of, you know, the, the, that we have to spend two days getting a snare drum sound. We have to bring snare drums in. And it still just sounds like Steve Goulding playing drums in the end. We all just sound like us. And Jimmy Iovine was trying to find something else, something other than what we were. And good for him. I, I'm pleased about that. No problem. But it didn't come out like that to me. The rumor guys disliked it more than me. I was I was pretty happy in the end. It was it was good. Was it, was the process of it different in terms of was it more kind of the mutt lang separating everyone and mixing it together as opposed to you guys playing as a band? 
No, no, it wasn't really. It wasn't that severe. It wasn't that severe at all. It was more sort of traditional, really. It was just uh, this endless seeking of sounds. And that was in 1980. You know, imagine how bad it got mid-80s. when There was a bit more technology. It wasn't even digital, but still there was more technology into how to make a snare sound deafeningly loud. And a lot of it is based on you hear the snare drum sound on a Motown record. But that was organic. Right. You know, we, it wasn't, even though people were trying to reproduce that in the modern age, it didn't sound like it. So, you know, uh, now I just, now it's like it's so easy to mic up a drum kit. The engineer goes up and puts some mics there, goes back in, checks it, do some adjustment, you've got a drum sound. On the up escalator, it seems it's like days. And, you know, in the another gray area, these things took a long time and they just still sound just like drums. You know, it was a, it, it, it was a distraction to some extent how people started to get into sounds a bit more than people playing and right. press the record button. I mean, that's been my, my war cry for a long time. Don't bother me with details. Press record. That's what I shout to the engineer. Mm. So, Graham, the electricity has gone off. I'm like, don't bother me with details. Press record. <laughs> we can't. The elect- I don't care. Press- <laughs> Just get on with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it, because it's 1980 and not 1984. It, it it's not a particularly dated sound. You know, it's like because there because certainly there are records from you know like the mid 80s where you just have those synthesized drum sounds and everything, and you think, oh, that just has a total timestamp. Right. And I don't feel like the up escalator does. It's no, just, it's like just sort of more layers of stuff on there. So you'll have like a lead guitar being line that also has the keyboard playing the same part, and it's just like a little more. It's just kind of more going on on it, so it's not not quite as like sharp sort of attack that squeezing out sparks was. It's a little bit more kind of smoothed over, maybe. Yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, it, it, it's um, yeah, it wasn't meant to be like squeezing out sparks. There's only one squeezing out sparks, of course. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, it just it it's not so much what we're playing or how much we're playing or how little we're playing. To me, it's just a. a a sort of lack of personality in the sound, um, the overall feel of it. The sense it's it's something I can't define, but nobody else would would say that. I don't think, and I'm that that's fine. They're, they're not hearing what I'm hearing, right? You know, and not that I've heard it lately, but any time I have done, I, it's it sounds a bit plain to me. It's a little bit plain for you know the fact that Jimmy was reaching for something that wasn't plain. Right. And then you have Bruce Springsteen, uh, you know, on Empty Lives with you. Did you do you feel like you guys had sort of a musical kinship at that point? Um, well, it's my name and, it, you know, popped up in his, it, I mean, his his name popped up in things written about me all the time. I mean, there's a similarity. I'd never heard Springsteen until Born to Run, like pretty much anybody else in the world. I never even knew the guy existed until his guy who became his manager said, I've seen the future of rock, blah, blah, blah. That was when I heard of him. I thought, wait a minute, who is this person? Um, and that was, be, you know, just before my career began. So I never heard him until 1974, was it, when uh, was uh, the Born to Run? 75, I think. 
about 75. So my career was actually on the cards by then. I, I was just about that point or just had a record deal. There it was. It was after. I think, I think it was a bit after. But um, so my songs were already written, more or less. My style was formed. So there was, it's a bit baffling to me today, the, the, these comparisons. It's all wallpaper to me, this comparison crap, you know, now. It's just wall. These people are wallpaper. I'm not. I'm not putting him down. He's one of the great. If anyone should be a superstar with great music as well, it's Bruce Springsteen. He's the guy. He should be the one. And that's fantastic. Lo you know, he's brilliant. Love it. It's different to me though. It's much more. It's, it's the lyrics are very. It's different. It's quite different. Yeah. It's you know, in many ways, you know, he's a singer and he has a band behind him. Okay, and he's intense and passionate. You know, me too. I guess we sound. Yeah, passionate. I never thought of you two as like sort of making similar music. I didn't, at least. I mean, I not just, really. No, I'd read that he was a fan of yours. That he had said something like, "If there's one band I'd play to see, it's Graham Parker and the Room." Oh yeah, and also he's on the record. So you know, you got Danny Federici on the record. You got him on the record. You got Jimmy Iovine who worked with him producing. So, so there's some spring, and he's just done doing the River that same year. So he's sort of on the you know, kind of reaching that peak as well. So there's some alignment between the two of you, at least at that point. Well, yeah, he was he was just happening to stay in the same hotel as me, the Navarro in New York, which was on Central Park uh, South. Fantastic place. You'd get a room in the back and you wouldn't know you are in the city, you know, big, big old rooms and all this. You stay there a lot. It was great. And uh, I think once or twice I was coming back from the studio and there was Bruce outside with John Landau. It was about three in the morning and they're just having a chat. So, yeah, yeah, I've just been in the studio. So Jimmy said, you want to have Bruce sing on the record? He's in town. I said, yeah, I know. He's, he's... And uh, I said, yeah, sure. That'd be all right. You know, why not? It, it, it'd, be, it'd be be fun. And so he just came in, did some backing vocals. And that was it. Right. But, you know, and uh, he's been a huge supporter of mine. And, uh, you know, Born Run, I mean, what a monstrous album. It's unbelievable. It's a concept album. To compare it with Howling Wind is, like, absurd, you know, <laughs> to even say there's some comparison apart from, there's a singer, he's passionate, he's he's got an intense voice. I mean, hello, welcome to rock music. <laughs> I mean, unless you're craft work, you're going to be intense. You know, Britney Spears is intense and emotional. Yeah, we all are. You weren't doing Yacht Rock. No, it was, you know, it was, uh, yeah, we came, we came from, a, there were similar traditions and uh, the R&B, the soul and the feel of that and, and songwriting. So in this period, how important was commercial success to you? Like, was that sort of uh, something you had in your mind? Like, I want to achieve that? Um, well, yeah, I, I suppose so. But as I say, that first album was like, wouldn't it be amazing to make an album? Right. The fact that I got a four-record album deal straight off the bat uh, didn't really mean anything because well, do you get to the second album? Do you make three and that's the end of it? Do you, uh, could I get as far as three albums? Could I write songs as good as Howling Wind? Probably not, but can I write them good enough to make them out? Um but of course, you know, you all want to reach an audience. And what I saw was that every record sold a bit more than the others. Every one as I went along. It wasn't big, not by no any means. But they all sold more, and I kept getting more and more money. 
And I kept going on David Letterman, and you know, I kept being. I just thought, well, I'm here. I'm established. It's this is you know, still with the idea that it'll all disappear any minutes, you know, and you'll never make a record again. But the, so you you get what you get, you know. You cannot twist the audience's arm. You cannot twist the public's arm, you know. Right. So you get what you get. Well, when you went in with Jack Douglas uh, to do another gray area with this, you know, set of musicians, mostly that he's brought in, how did that feel different for you? And did, did that feel kind of liberating in a way or also did it make you uneasy or how did that work? Well, I definitely wanted to be at the, uh, to have backing musicians the opposite of the rumor, you know, that didn't have that breakneck intensity, you know, a bit more mellow, a bit uh, calmer. And there was songs like there was Temporary Beauty. In a way, that was like the the keystone, right? That song should not be played by Graham Parker and the Rumor. It should be played by other musicians. And uh, there it was. And so I, they, they were just they were good musicians. They fitted in well. Uh, they um, they learned the songs and they played them. Simple as that, really. And it, it it was more or less what I wanted. It was like, yeah, that's what I wanted. That does not sound like Graham Parker and the Rumor. But it's good. And uh, fant- ama- amazingly, America didn't blink. It got good reviews, really. It's still popular to this day. And it was just re-released on a Iconoclastic Records with some extra tracks. And So, yeah, I, 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 I was all right with it. I thought it was a good start. Let's put it that way. I thought it was a good start to the adventure of chopping and changing musicians now and again. Right. You're singing it in a more expansive way also. Um, you know, it seems like your your singing is evolving on that record as well. Yeah, yes, that was another leap actually, and uh, that leading towards, you know, the singing that I developed that, that came along with the Mona Lisa sister record. But you're right, I was I was getting more to be, you know, a singer. You know, calm down a bit, sing from the chest, and not just scream, not scream. You know, it still sounds, as I say, as I said earlier, it still sounds too harsh, my voice on that song, but on, te- on Temporary Beauty. But it's not bad, you know. It was like, that's, it was doing the songs justice. And then you had like an American hit a few years later with Wake Up Next to You. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's really slick, isn't it? And smooth and sweet. Nice song. I mean, did you, when you wrote that, did you think, oh, this is my hit single or? No. No, I, I thought, well, you never know. I mean, there's a lot of Michael Jackson vocalizations in there. I'm doing mm. all this. Oh, 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 oh. Hey, <laughs> I want to. What, what, what is that thing I see? I wanted to say she wants to say. Hey, I'm doing a bit of Jackson in there. You know, there's some sweet stuff, and it's like, oh, I can do this stuff. I'm pretty good. Not too bad. And again, I'm singing for the. I'm singing the, the way the song should be sung. So, um, yeah, that was, that was good. That was a pretty decent record. That. How do you look back on those '80s records in general? Like, are, are they? Do you go back and listen to them and think, "Oh, these were great," or do you, you know, sort of like them but then think, "Oh, some of the production, you know, because it was the '80s," or I don't know. I'm just putting words in your mouth now. Yeah, no, pretty much what I've been saying. I'm, I'm listening and going, "Oh no, for goodness' sake!" Usually, it's too fast. It just feels too fast to me. Um, the, the one thing about records is listening back even to a new record, maybe a certain amount of months later. I, I don't want to listen to it. I have to stop because it sounds like it's um, it is what it is. It's locked into place. You know what I mean? It cannot change. Right. It cannot change. Live performances, reinventing the song 
you know, that that makes it change. That gives it life. It breathes life in. So for me, it's a little bit uh, a bit funny. Always listening back, even even to, to every new record. But now and again, I'll listen. I'll just listen back to Acid Bubblegum, which was on Razor and Tie in the '90s, I think '96, because mm. that is going to be released, um, re-released soon, and uh, eventually be in vinyl in America. Oh, Icon of Classic Records again. They're doing that, and probably Deep Cut to Nowhere. No, well, yeah, maybe Deep Cut to Nowhere. So they're re-releasing, and and finally some of those records will be on vinyl. And I listened through to Acid Bubblegum because the guy said, Jeremy, the guy running, working the company, said, uh, can you liner notes for for these records? You know, Acid Bubblegum first. So I listened to the whole thing just weeks ago, and I thought, this is good. This is good. This is a good record. It rocks like a, a, a safari park chimp. That first track, turn it into hate. Whoa. That's not a bad record. Well, again, when I get to a ballad, I'm doing it too fast and too intense. <laughs> I'm not mellowing it out enough. There's, there's that. But the, the intense songs, I've got the added, the voice now. The, the, in, by those days, I had the voice that, that could sing it, not just scream it. So a song like Obsessed with Aretha or Turn It Into Hate, there's actual tone in my voice there's tone and warmth and it's not all from the throat so i listened to it the whole thing back so that's that's a pretty good record i'm, I'm you know as like i say i'm proud of all of them in my own way doesn't mean i want to listen to them much but this i was kind of forced to i'm doing the liner notes i should at least listen and i did i'm like i'm pretty pleased with that record you know any albums in those you know sort of 90s to 2000s 2010s where like in particular, you think I wish more people had heard that one because the business was in a bad place, but it's actually some of my best work. I mean, I, I mean, you're very consistent from album now anyway, but I'm just wondering for you if there was something that you thought, oh, this is the one that should have been gotten more attention than it did. Uh, well, the the thing is, they can't really because I still think radio is important. You know, getting played on radio because there's also digital radio now, right? And uh, when radio stations, it does uh, with any career. When you're not far into it, and they realise this guy doesn't make hit records, then they're not going to play you. So there is almost zero chance of most people ever hearing the song. And with any song of mine, especially you got to, especially the newer ones, they don't slap you right upside the head. Boom. You have to listen to them three times. I know fans of mine who are hardcore fans said, I had to listen to this new record of yours four times before I began to start to get it. They didn't understand. They thought it was a bit lame. So unless you get that people have the chance to listen, you, I mean, how do you have a hit record? It's, it's impossible. Yeah. There, so there are a lot of, I'm not claiming originality, a great deal of record, people who write very, very good songs, produce albums, they're not going to get a shot that's big enough, you know, they're not going to get enough plays. You need to be on on the hour, every hour, in as many formats as possible. And so that's not going to happen. So I can't even, it doesn't really occur to me in that sense. I just think, well, that's a that's a really good one. That Wow, not bad at all if I listen, hear something old. So that happened to me pretty early on. That obviously, I'm not a hit maker. I'm an album artist. That's, once they pin you in that, you're not getting back. You know, there's, there's, you know, you're not going to get a payola anymore because you're with indie labels. I was, yeah, I was, I was listening to a lot again, and I'm, 
I mean, certainly songs that were getting played on the radio here, like You Hit the Spot and Life Gets Better and Get Started, Start a Fire. I mean, those are all songs that sounded great on the radio because you still write really strong, memorable three-minute songs, you know? Or oh, I know, they're, they're, I know they're catchy as hell. They're catchy as hell, they are. Yeah, I, uh, talking of Hit the Spot, I remember saying to... I said, so I was still on Arista, and I said to, to Clive... <laughs> The head man or his assist. Try this at clubs. Can you try to get this this song played? Try and get it into a, a club playlist. Dancing. It's a dance number, right? It's it's funky. But the thing is, by then, the kind of beats per minute concept was locked into place. Hmm. And however funky and dancey that song is, hit the spot, it's nowhere near what was required. And so people just don't understand it and they're not going to dance to it and they're not going to play it. But they, they said they played it in a club. They got it in the club, guy played it, and everyone sat down. Everyone stopped dancing. <laughs> so it's like, what is, is my music from another planet? Well, it is really if it hasn't got a certain amount of beats per minute. Well, it's the wrong It's from spot. another planet. It might as well be. You know, they're this incomprehensible. It sounded great on the radio, though. So I, I uh, that, yeah, I bet it did. But you know, how many times could people hear it? That's the point. They drop it very quickly. You see, there was this thing in America in those days called it didn't light up the phones. If it didn't light up the phones, they were going to drop it real quick. You know, that's the thing. The phones had to be gone. Who is that? I love that. Play it again. If that doesn't happen, you're done. That's what happened with me. The phones did not light up. Mm. Yeah, I think well, '82 when that album came out, I would have been listening to XRT and. And uh, I just I remember that was in pretty heavy rotation there, but that was a pretty idiosyncratic station at the time. So my daughters discover stuff now. I have no idea what it is. I'm like, where'd you where'd you get that? And they're like, YouTube. I'm like, okay, or Spotify. But it's sort of like weird, like algorithms where they'll listen to one thing that will lead them to something else. But everyone's going down these other little paths, and there's not that kind of shared feeling of. Like, oh, did you hear the new Grand Parker song? Yeah, it sounds great. No, it is. Yeah, it's um, it's disappointing, really to a lot of extent that radio stations get locked into what they get locked into. But it's understandable. It's a market thing, isn't it? You know, you appeal to that market, you can't stray out of it. You know, they can't dare stray out of it. People get fired, you know. You stray out of that, you're playing this guy? What are you playing this guy for? You can imagine it. Yeah, it's a great record. It should be played. But no, it is not our format. They don't like it. No. Do you remember the first time you heard one of your songs on the radio? Yeah, um, oh, well, it was the, 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 the demo that I got the record deal by, was, you know, the Between You and Me. That was before I got the record deal, when the demo was played, and then immediately after that, the guy from Phonogram called up and said, who's that guy I want to call the DJ? And that was on a small radio station, Radio London, mm. a station I'd never even heard of. But Charlie Gillette was the guy who played, he would play bands before they were signed. Was that a you thrill know. for you to hear it? It was, yeah. It was like, that's pretty amazing. But uh, then I'd made the first album, and uh, the, uh, the first single was Silly Thing off of Howling Wind. Right. That was the first single. And I heard it on Radio 1. And I, in, in Britain, you had to be on Radio 1 to have a hit. And you had to play be played a lot by DJ after DJ. And I heard Silly Thing on the radio because it's a, a tremendously catchy tune. You know, it's it's really catchy. It's it's a pop catchy song in a way, but done with the, the swing feel. And I heard it. And I thought this won't fly. I thought, however catchy this is, 
it's the band, the way we play, the way we perform, the way we sing, it sounds like Delta Blues. That's what, That was what I thought. This can never catch on. Sure enough, it was dropped almost immediately. It didn't get any more than a few plays. So it had to, it had to be people had to find us. They had to find the albums. They weren't going to find it from radio, not much. Even though we had three songs, we appeared on Top of the Pops with three different songs, which if you play on Top of the Pops, you've made it in England, basically. It means you've got a hit record. They were minor hits, you know, but they were they still crept into the top thirty. Um, but that that's when they stopped them. You know, it was it was still more like an album artist and a live artist is what I sort of got sort of fenced into in a way. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, hey, Lord, don't ask me questions. That one got some play early on, but certainly became like sort of a signature tune. Well, yeah, it was it, uh, there was there's a there's a film of us on top of the pops doing it the new the different version the Mutt Langer version uh, so there it was as a single and it was in a good position to to get somewhere this time because it uh, you know it was really just reserved as an album track in the original version so there it was with a bit of a chance with this discoed up version by Mutt Langer which I thought was good not as good as the Howling Wind one but you know it was good. In its own way, it's we recreated it and reimagined it, I suppose, based on Mutt's ideas. And then it stopped getting played. You know, they just stopped playing it. And Dave Robinson said to me, oh, some vicar called up, some religious person and said, that's offensive. <laughs> hey, Lord, don't ask me because he's, he's, you know, something bad about, saying bad things about God. I don't know whether that's true or not. I think they just stopped playing it because <laughs> it wasn't getting enough. Because <laughs> the listeners weren't enthusiastic enough, probably. Cloud symbols, uh, you know, Girl in Need, uh, you sing, when you say you're past your prime, reinvent yourself one more time. And I'm not saying you're past your prime, but do you feel like you need to reinvent yourself, or is it more a matter of just doing what you do well? Oh, well, that, that of course, is a, a solidarity with women song, really, because it's Girl in Need. It's not right. nothing to do with me. But, of course, there is that aspect to it. It could be to good, do with anyone, as you say. Reinvent yourself one more time. Um, and For me, that's easy, because every time you write a song, you've reinvented yourself a bit. And when you've got enough songs together and you make an album, boom, you've, re you've hit refresh all over again. You've just reinvented the same old wheel. It is the same old wheel, but you just reinvented it, and it feels fresh and new, and uh, it's it's exciting. So you know that's a good that's a great thing about creativity, and it's and it should work for the audience as well. Yeah, it, it hits refresh for them. Do you get the same charge out of doing that now as you did forever? Uh, pretty much so. Yeah. Yeah, the, when the songs and we 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 cut cut a take and it's just the three of us playing and we hear it, we know from the foundation of those those three instruments and voice four instruments, I guess we call them voice. We you can feel it. The musicians are saying that's great, that's good. It's like yes, oh yeah, fantastic, exciting. It just costs too much bloody money and it won't sell. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been such a treat for me. I really appreciate you talking to me. And uh, I'll cross fingers that the recording comes out because you said a lot of fantastic stuff. So thank you for having me. That's it for episode 76 of Carol Pop. 
Thanks so much to Graham Parker for continuing to add more fine music to his great body of work and for being so willing to talk about all of it with such depth and candor. Go to his official website, grahamparker.net, to order merch and exclusive editions of some of his albums and to see his upcoming solo tour dates. They include shows in Berkeley, California on May 13th, the New York City Winery on May 31st, and Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music on July 14th. You also can follow him on Twitter at It's Graham Parker, no apostrophe. Carol Pop is produced and given protection by Chris Swake, whom there's no holding back. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email so you can hear about upcoming events and episodes. We promise not to spam you. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop Conversation. Thanks. Thanks.